Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Today on the podcast, I've got the pleasure to have with me uh, Katharina Yin Rickert, who is a PI at uh, the university in Hamburg, the University Medical Center in Hamburg, and you work in the Department of Osteology. And I came across Katharina through one of the ITN program, the Fidelio ITN, where we have a bunch of, of PhD researchers working across Europe on lots of different topics to do with bone biology. So welcome on the podcast, Katharina. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> So let's start with the early years in your research uh, in your research life. Can you give us a brief overview of your career in research so far? Yeah. So I studied biochemistry in my home country in Germany in a place called Leipzig and during the study I got the opportunity to take part in an Erasmus project which took me to Aberystwyth in Wales. And there I was involved in proteomics and uh, on C. elegans. And uh, somehow it was so exciting to work with just within the research settings. And there were lots of international people, lots of exchange um, between the students, the postdocs. And I got so excited that I thought, okay, I should really pursue a career like this. And but then it just, I don't know, maybe a lucky coincidence, or I don't know. Um, I got the chance to meet a professor there who heard from me and uh, they came from Leipzig to do an Erasmus project. And he then started to connect me to people in, in Switzerland, in Davos, in the AO. And that's where I did my PhD on bone biology, actually with a bioreactor. And that was, yeah, my start. And I think uh, really nice from me personally um, to do that. So why bone biology? I mean, it's often mm -hmm. when uh, when I talk to researchers about why choosing a topic, it's sometimes we have a vague interest in, in, in a research area based on maybe a lecture that we've had in our studies or on a master that we've done. But actually picking a PhD topic is really challenging. And, and it's not necessarily the case that we we have all of the opportunities in the world of working on, on something. When you were making the decision about the type of topic uh, to work on your for your PhD, how did you really get around to choose? Because depending on who we meet, the opportunities that we have or how daring mm. we are to, to reach out to people, the choice that we make are very significant in shaping the rest of our career. So in your case, how did you, what was mm. the path of actually making this choice? Yeah, so what I just described was the initial spark, let's say, right? So this international environment that really excited me and an opportunity that came along. From the topics, I have to say, is so during the biochemistry study in Leipzig, we had also lots of practical um, sessions in the different labs in, in and around Leipzig. And one of the topics that I was super excited at the time was the circadian rhythm. And I tried to get involved with the group and I came very close to catching the position 
to to do uh, my diploma there and then go on to do my PhD or Doktorat. It would be in Germany at the time, <laughs> um, but it, I didn't quite make it. And then I was invited for this interview with this opportunity that I just mentioned in Davos at the AO Foundation. And I have to say, I just went maybe a little naive as into the topic of bone. But when I was there, God, I was, I was, I mean, surprised, astonished, blown away. It just took me into a completely different world that I was not expecting because maybe some people can relate to. I was thinking, okay, bone, this rigid material that we have, I mean, what, what's, What's so fascinating about it? What should happen? <laughs> What's going on? And there, I mean, there was so much research done, bone explants, mechanical loading, experiments that went to space and tissue engineering. I mean, yeah, mind-blowing is maybe a good word. And that's why I decided, okay, I like the, the international idea. I liked also the group there. The research topic was exciting and something maybe also out of the box in a way. That's why. In, in a bio that I found of you online, they, it says that one of your, the projects that you work worked on was funded by the European Space Agency and that got me very excited and and again it's there's been lots of documentaries about the studies that are made in terms of thinking of the bones of astronauts and so on so tell us a little bit about this <laughs> yeah so for this I have to say so when I was a little kid my first career choice was always to become an astronaut Unfortunately, I cannot spin so fast. I get super dizzy. So I'm an astronaut like this. So then in this research setting during my PhD, there was the opportunity to collaborate with other research on this um, project funded by the European Space Agency. And the idea was to look into high frequency loading with a low impact and what it does on bone metabolism if it's in any way anabolic because as you probably know so one of the biological problems for astronauts being on a um, long space mission is the lack of gravity which really affects the musculoskeletal tissue and for the bone you have a dramatic loss in um, bone material so to prevent or at least to delay that loss or reduce the loss of bone. The astronauts also on the International Space Station, they have to do quite a lot of exercise, but it's still not giving sufficient results. So they will still lose muscle mass, but also bone. So the idea of this project was um, to have a bioreactor, so not no animal experiments that were sent up to space, but a, a bioreactor with bone explants from, what I have to remember, I think it was bovine bones, so from the slaughterhouse, um, you know, where you would have your steak coming and we took uh, the bone material and then uh, cultured them for some time in space. Oh, wow. Having your experiments go into space, they, it's very exciting. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It, 
so at the end of your um, at the end of your PhD, then what what did you decide to do? I think most PhDs have some critical point, or at least that's what I heard. And for me, there was also a point in time, let's say maybe halfway through the PhD, where I could not work any longer with the bioreactor. That was a main part of my project, and that was all my experiments were based on this bioreactor. So I got the challenge in a way from my supervisors that was, okay, this is your PhD, so you can either, if you don't want, finish this as a master, or now this is your time to develop it further. So I started to read a lot and what can I do, maybe some other culture systems. And one of the cell types that was that we always investigated within the bone bioreactors and kind of checked the viability during these long-term cultures that we were doing was the osteocyte. So, and during my reading and what I could do and to maybe explore other ways um, to culture cells or, or explants, ex vivo, it was coming more and more to my attention that the osteocyte was a new topic at the time. And Somehow this cell that was maybe a little bit forgotten in bone had seemed to have at the time all these other functions. And I, I just got um, highly excited. And I think it was a conference I was able to go to where I heard the first time a talk from Professor Linda Bonewald, who was at the time, I think, in Texas and then went to uh, Kansas City, so in the U.S. and that was yeah, just so, I mean, the novel research that she presented, the ideas together with that, that all had to do with the roles of osteocytes in bone, just totally spoke to me. And so I decided that this is something I would like to do. I would like to learn more about osteocytes and do research with those cells. So that's interesting because in a way it's about going from whatever the topic is during the PhD to actually carving the research niche. And the, the, the concept of the research niche is something that may, many at the, at the beginning of a research career and also the challenge of shifting from whatever the, the topic of the, the, the PhD supervisor is to actually be what becomes yours in terms of making something your own space and creating something. And, and one of the things that you just said about uh, almost like a forgotten topic, something that is, but they are forgotten topics that are not necessarily topics that you're going to get funding on. So how did you, in a way, navigate the space of going, well, that that's this area it's really quite ex i'm getting quite excited about it and that's something that can actually become my research and the thing that i i, I develop and how mm -hmm. did you link to the ideas that you were building at the time to actually choosing a topic to work for your postdoc I mean, was the PI for the postdoc somebody who already had a project or did you design the project? How did you kind of explore this transition? Yeah. So my first postdoc was actually then with the professor I just mentioned, so Linda Bonobal, because I, I felt brave enough to contact her. So I made an inquiry, so to say. So just an application out of the blue and emphasized 
my research interest and what I had already learned from her papers and where I would like to to go. So my main drive at the point was to, in a way, support osteocyte research and find more functions of these cells. So then I think we met online first and then later on in an interview also. And she was suggesting a few topics to me, kind of to see also where my interest lies. And when I started my postdoc with her, I had two major topics. So one of them was something that she was also funded for and she really liked. And the other one was something where I could maybe develop it myself a bit further. And that was another project that we later finished. So it was a mix of the PI's interest and, and then also giving me the opportunity during this time to to develop something also that I find exciting. And at the beginning, to be honest, it was something um, that had to do with autophagy, so a different topic, and that didn't work out. So even though I was excited, I thought this could be something good. I didn't quite manage to pursue it also technically at the time. And it was then another topic that then went better and then also became my interest topic. Yeah. And I mean, in a way, you're making an important point here in terms of also sometimes having to let go in terms of the technology isn't quite there to be able to do a set of experiments that I'm interested in. And instead of going down the rabbit hole to actually accept, okay, I need to move on. One of the, the, the topics that I'm particularly interested in exploring with you is the, the topic of collaboration. Often I... I Having worked with many PhD students and postdocs, they, they often find really, really challenging the first steps of developing their own collaboration. They kind of rely maybe on the collaborators of their PI or their PhD supervisor. So early on in, in your career, how did you actually start seeking your own collaborators? And one of the things that, that you mentioned earlier in terms of the project that you did as part of the European Space Agency was a, a sort of a collaborative project. So early on in your career, what was the way that you went about it? Mm -hmm. So, yes, as you mentioned, so um, this the Space Agency project was maybe the first collaboration I I witnessed and I experienced, even though those were not my collaborators, they, those were the collaborators of my people. And I saw the good and the bad, I would say. <laughs> so one of the reasons why the bioreactor was um, also not available for my studies had to do with this collaboration and things that can happen, I guess, if people come together and have to discuss um, what has to be done or what, what not has to be done. But I do have to say that overall, the experience working together has been uh, positive because from all the collaborations also now that I'm witnessing, it's gain that you get, right? So there's something that either you cannot do um, technically or you cannot understand, um, maybe intellectually or just because it's a little bit out of your, out of your research background. So to bring this together to a project or a consortium is just great to have that. It just expands everything. And my own collaborators, I find it personally easy to not particularly seek them, but actually go about it in a way to 
the more you you work together in teams and especially while moving around so i have been to to switzerland um, i have been to the uk i've been to the us and you meet people you work together with people you go to conferences and maybe there's a person on your poster that you just talk to for a very long time and you will meet them again so you establish some connection you will talk about your work maybe about their work and these collaborations then happen in a way naturally it's not that like totally naturally maybe sometimes you have to say you remember we have met or maybe it's your let's say a friend or so and then you say please I have seen this advertisement there's a grant and it would be a great opportunity to actually develop a project together and we had this idea so to go from these personal connections that you make that for me was the best way so far to establish collaborations. Mm. What have you found a, a challenging in increasing the reach of people knowing you? Because in a way, when you go to a conference and you feel that you're a lowly PhD student or a lowly postdoc and you don't know anyone and you're not necessarily somebody who is very much of an an extrovert in terms of really talking to anybody who is at the conference. So reaching out in the context of in a, a meeting, a conference to get people to where you just want to have conversation, mm -hmm. but also in terms of maybe you're missing technology, a methodology for your research and you, you have to contact. So what's been your own approach so that you were able to, to go out there so that people will help you to bring stuff for their project but also when when you felt that I can bring something to somebody else's project how have you kind of practically done about it because yeah. in, in theory we know it's like oh yeah you just contact people but some uh, many many people find that really challenging yeah, mm -hmm. yeah so I, I personally find that challenging too I am still getting highly nervous if let's say there's a big crowd either in a real auditorium or also in these online meetings and it's time to ask questions and have a discussion. So it's just something, I guess, uh, that is more nerve-wracking for some people than for others. So, but what to do when I have a pressing question and maybe want to connect to someone. So for me, I have always liked to approach the person personally that works best for me because then I also have time to um, maybe go a little bit deeper into the conversation. Let's say I would like something from that person, some knowledge or some insight. So either after the, the presentation, after the session, I see if maybe um, the person is approachable and I can go there and just introduce myself and say, I'm really excited about your work and I would like to 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 know this and that or to ask for help for me but also on these uh, early conferences so where maybe I went alone or there's just not so much interaction because you are new to the field I have always find these social events uh, super good where you kind of meet the people in a little bit more relaxed atmosphere and maybe you have the chance to talk to your table neighbor so sitting next to you and just have a conversation there and find out if maybe that person yeah just what they are doing and maybe I mean obviously you find something else where you can somehow connect and then and see if um, you can learn from each other so 
both of these approaches I I really liked. Um, Sometimes on paper, somebody may ought to be your collaborator because the what they have could really enhance the research. So on paper, in theory, this person would be the right person as a collaborator, but there are people that we don't really get on with. <laughs> so in a way for you, when you're initiating conversation with, with people, what do you think is a total put off that you, you, you start talking with this person, but then you feel, okay, they're total jerk. <laughs> or I don't know. It's like, I'm not going to even try because the way, the vibe that I'm getting isn't right. In your case, what is a pull or a push in terms of following mm. on the conversation so that the person potentially becomes a collaborator? Yeah, for me, I think it has to do with respect. And that's exactly kind of where your question, your first question came from. So if I'm the PhD student and I'm going maybe to a professor, an associate professor, and I'm asking a question, if uh, he or she is not really interested in even looking into my eyes and maybe just talking to the next person who is another professor who came came later to ask a question, then I know um, that that's not something I can do because the collaboration would be not on um, the same ground, let's, let's say it in, in picturesque words. And that's definitely something where I thought, okay, then I will not address this any further or talk no further. But if I um, find that the person maybe makes a joke, uh, so let's say there was a, actually what I thought was a competitor from my previous boss um, who was working on the say a similar topic um, on osteocyte viability at the time. And I, I saw his presentation and I went to him and I wanted to ask him a question. And my my boss at the time was like, yeah, yeah, go and ask. I was like, okay, then, then I do it. And he just, after like a first introduction, then I kind of was brave enough because he was smiling at me. And I said, I was a little reluctant to, to talk to you because I wasn't sure if we are competing with one another. And he started laughing and kind of yelled uh, through the almost empty auditorium to my boss and, and, and repeated what I just said. And then they were both laughing. So that's when I think that this is a nice person and you can just you can just talk about your work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and in a way, it's like almost not, it's um, not avoiding the, the issue that, yeah, I mean, we're working on the same thing mm -hmm. and it's like, yeah, we, we are competing, but it's fine. We can still talk, I guess. Uh, yeah. And then they were talking about the things that they have done together previously. So emphasizing that they are collaborating and things that maybe well, I didn't know, obviously, because I, I didn't see it. So that made it very comfortable. So, yeah. So what, what is there something that you do at the start of a collaboration in terms of the conversation that you have with people that really helps set the scene on how the collaboration is working because collaboration just starts with a conversation, but going from a conversation to actually doing really fruitful work together, there is a path that's where things go well or not so well. And sometimes you may get a really great research output, but 
the process was really painful. So in a way, is there something that you do yourself when you're starting this you know, initial conversation and then moving on that you think really are helpful in having really effective and enjoyable collaboration? Mm. Personally, I have to say, so for me, it also depends on... So if I'm starting this and if I may be starting this a little bit um, with a person that's, um, that I maybe don't know so much, I would always like to start with what's my background, um, what's the research I have been doing and what's the research I'm doing now. And maybe depending on the person I talk to and also their, if they're maybe a high up professor or a medical doctor that's more in the clinic and maybe expand a little bit more maybe i say also the papers that i have published or maybe i even mention the grants that um, i have obtained so to to really set up okay this is what i have achieved and maybe you don't know this but i i would like to tell you this now and then when talking about the collaboration i find it super helpful to also say so what I personally would like to get out of this. So if it is an opportunity for me to collaborate because maybe the person has samples or specimens that I could never obtain myself, that then I would obviously emphasize this, this fact, but then say why and what I would really like to investigate with these samples to show them that maybe this is something they haven't thought of themselves but also to say, okay, this is based on what I've told you previously. This is my area of expertise and I can really work with this um, in a collaboration with you. And then obviously there will be these difficult and hard discussions about maybe then also authorships within your collaboration. But it doesn't have to be just within the collaboration. These are always difficult topics. I find it good to be open. It's best to talk about it. Sometimes, obviously, there is a person who has done the most work that will be the first outer, but maybe there are two people who feel like they have done the most work, especially if you start something, if you are collaborating, maybe one person leads or has to work on another project. So this has to be discussed. I think it's the best. And sometimes the discussion might not go so well, then you stop it and you start again another day. And usually, so from what I have experienced, at one point you reach a ground where everyone is happy. Just uh, don't give up talking, I find. Um, and if there's some bad blood in the way, then just take some rest and start again the next day <laughs> to discuss further. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting because uh, also in terms of the interdisciplinary collaboration, in terms of the discussing where the work gets published, it can become, pro I mean, can be problematic. So what's been your approach in having this discussion with, because uh, the, the work that you do is uh, quite interdisciplinary. Mm, so is, yeah. how do you... How do you, what is the path of the conversation that you have when you discuss where the work is going to be published? Because some, I mean, again, it's depending on your, your discipline, what is valued in terms of the type of publication where you may be expected to publish is different than somebody else. So 
in this conversation about where to publish in interdisciplinary collaboration, what has been your approach so that everybody is happy with the outcome? Yeah. So as a younger researcher, I have to say I had a, a dream journal where I always would like to publish. So I always wanted to have a first outer presentation in the Journal of Bone and Mineral Research, so the JBMR, because that's the one that all the bone research researchers will read. So that was my that was my wish, my aim, and um, it took me some years. And I was super excited when it actually happened. So why did it take me some years? I mean, some projects are maybe not so. There's a, a certain standards that obviously the journal requires, and maybe your project is a little smaller. So some of my earlier work were maybe smaller, or maybe not in the interest quite of the editor at the time. So then you have to seek for another journal. And nowadays, with these interdisciplinary projects now that I'm working on, I mean, it's a, in a way a discussion, but it's still that I depend also on the, the suggestions of my, yeah, still my my mentor. So, so if there is a suggestion there, which is of high impact, so we all want to publish in high-impact uh, journals, then obviously we will try. We will see maybe if we get some reviewer comments. Maybe we didn't make it, but these reviewer comments, we had it now actually a manuscript that has not been published yet, but we got very good reviewer comments from high-impact journal. And this has been super useful. And I think the, the manuscript um, has been much improved. So maybe now with the current review process that we are in this will help us actually to get it published so it's definitely a challenge because it is the aim to publish in high impact um, journals personally i prefer um, that the people of my my crowd so my collaborators competitors that they are reading it and then the best if they decide to cite it so we had a great opportunity also to publish in uh, Frontiers Journal. And there the review process is super open. All the review comments are published online. And this was a super good um, experience also for us because it gave us a chance to publish this work. We had trouble um, publishing this manuscript. And now a lot of people, I think it has over 2,000 views already. So that makes me very happy. <laughs> So it's interesting because that, that's an important point in terms of what you value as, as a researcher, as a scientist, and, and from what you're describing, actually having people read your work from your crowd, from your co research community, in a way is almost like more important personally than actually a high impact. I mean, everybody wants a high impact publication, obviously, but in terms of career progression and so on, but actually being read by your community is really what drives you. And again, that's something that between collaborators, what people value can be very different. So do you, in a way, at the start, when you are going from conversation to actually putting in place the collaboration, do you actually discuss that from the start or do you wait later on in terms of what is the most important in terms of the outcome of the project, whether it's a publication or something else, but to actually sit down and saying, okay, that's really what matters to me in the way we work or that's really what matters to me 
in what I would like to have at the end of this collaboration? I have to say sometimes and maybe now more than in the past because of discrepancies that I experienced. So I do find it useful to also, when I talk about myself, maybe mention not just what I have been working on and what I would like to do in the future, but also how I would like to work in a way. So what matters to me personally, and also then in a collaboration, as in, in my own independent research too, is that the work is seen, that the work is appreciated, and that the work is also later on maybe discussed and referenced by other people so that it's actually of value. To me, this matters more because even though I'm driven by this internal drive of finding out something new just because that excites me i would like that it um, contributes and helps the research in general that is surrounding me so it's also very like a compliment to myself if somebody then based on a publication of mine then contacts me and says oh we we've tried to repeat your method we cannot quite make it to work can you send me how you did that and then if i see that paper from these people which it happened lately then then i'm super proud and i'm thinking okay so they could also do their work because of what we have done previously so another new piece of data that's contributing and that's of value to me so yeah i think it's something that is of importance and i do that now more often as in the past, because it does help to set a common ground. And you find out if the person is appreciating the way you see research or if he's in a different world and has other priorities. So in a way, it's about kind of anchoring the relationship in really kind of openness, honesty, and, and depth of conversation in, in saying yeah. what, what, we, what we need, I guess. Yeah. So... If you think about collaboration that have really not worked at all, <laughs> so sort of go back into sort of the negative space of this really didn't work. What, what made it really such a challenging collaboration? Mm, so personally, I have experienced when egos are too, too big, too strong, or just have collided too much that that really causes a problem. So that's a very personal thing. And my personal experience with that, it's so it was somebody else's ego. And um, so, so it had nothing to do really with me, but it impacted me in my project. So the ego problem is probably not just in research a big problem. So that's really hard to do something about that. Especially if it's maybe in your early career and you cannot quite help it by starting the conversation by yourself to maybe get them to start again and maybe see that they have a common connection. So that's, I think, from my experience, the biggest problem that I had. As in for research, I think, let's say... I was at the, that was my, my PhD project I'm thinking about where the bioreactor was not available anymore. And I have to say at the end of the day, it brought very positive things to me. So this 
trouble in the collaboration that was happening that I had no um, influence on, but it impacted me so much because it led me then to develop my own research. It, it started a process that was painful <laughs> because it just stopped everything that was working, but in a way it created something new. So how I see it nowadays is, I mean, if a collaboration is really not working and there is no way um, turning back or maybe kitting that process, then I think it's okay to let it go. On the other hand, I have a very good colleague and friend of mine and we had really bad experience getting a grant funded and we are still trying again this year to get it funded. There were all sorts of things happening. So one time I did not submit the additional file. I think one time she could actually not submit the grant because she had another grant already in the pipeline. So there were lots of things happening. And we were both getting really upset with one another over that process, which also impacted our friendship for some time. But that we could kit. So it took some time. We both like research we're still investigated in it and we both appreciate the other person so then my tip is just to say okay if it's somebody that you have a good connection with maybe take a break try again to talk in half a year and actually from my experience it if the drive is the research then you find together again I mean, that's, that's really a good point you make because the process and the, even the administrative process is not something that we think about very often in terms of actually making research work because there are lots of sort of internal boundaries. I mean, even in terms of research funding of working with different institutions or people from maybe also working with people in, in industry and limits that can be put in building the collaboration in terms of intellectual property and so on. So often there are sort of structural barriers that are created, not because of us, but because of the, the system that kind of challenge the interaction. And if you're, the starting point is that you appreciate the person, you appreciate their thinking, you're, you're interested in what they have to offer eventually even if it's challenging eventually you may reach a point and say okay let's start this again that's that was value valuable so in terms of your experience of interdisciplinary working and also working with people outside of the confine of the university what sort of experiences could you describe and you know advice that you have of making this collaboration work because again you're you're if you're thinking about interdisciplinary work, you're kind of adding a complexity in terms of the interaction. And if you're talking about working with industry, it's another level of complexity. So could you describe an example of other interdisciplinary experience that you've had or with partners outside of in the institution where you felt it really worked because? Mm. Yeah, so I mean... The best example, the most freshest one is maybe uh, my current working situation. So I'm in a research group led by Björn Busse, the head of my group, who is really uh, focusing on medical um, engineering, so bioengineering. So to put it in other words, the bone matrix. 
and all the function that it has and all the ways to image it and maybe to to break it or to investigate how it breaks. And the the common ground that we had was the osteocyte, which is embedded in the bone matrix. So I was focusing on the cell. And so the, the problem that we previously had and still sometimes have is different languages in a way. So if we are trying to work on something together, my view is totally based on the cellular function and maybe how it behaves there, maybe what it does with its surrounding matrix, while um, the other side of view is vocally on, on the matrix and things that I can, in my own words, still to this date not describe so much. So it's the challenge here is to really find the way where the language is the same in a way. <laughs> and But to me, this makes it exciting because, I mean, I, I actually find it strange. In a way, interdisciplinary approaches are the way to the future, I find, because at the end of the day, we all started to learn something we had no idea about. So during your our studies or in school or then later on as a PhD student, it's not that I knew everything about DNA isolation or um, I knew how to count osteoblasts on a microscope before I started it. And so it's a process. And even though maybe I'm not getting involved to a great extent now with Raman spectroscopy because it's used so much in my group, but I'm still getting exposed to it through the discussions and presentation of the work and then um, also answering the questions. So I think it just requires the open mind and maybe also the acceptance sometimes that I will not understand everything 100%. And maybe I have to ask a lot of these or I also feel stupid questions. But at the end of the day, I have this aha effect and then maybe I can later on contribute with an idea that's based on because, ah, okay, so now I understand this, but then maybe that means this and that, because all together, this is what we need, right? I think maybe it's also ego again, just in a different way, <laughs> because you have to accept, okay, I just don't know that. Maybe I will not 100% know that. <laughs> But I still would like to get as much involved as I possibly can, because at the end of the day, also my contribution then will be helpful to the other person who's an expert, maybe in Raman spectroscopy. So, yeah. Thank you. So I'd like to shift to the, the idea now of your role as a PI, because going from being a postdoc to then running your own research group, the, the responsibilities that you have are different. And in a way, the role that you have in shaping the career, the career of others becomes an, an, an additional challenge in, in, in your research life. So if we're focusing on the idea of collaboration, how, what is your own approach to supporting your PhD student and postdoc initiate their own collaboration and work well within the, the context of building their, what, what I call their collaboration potential? So, I mean, maybe I'm sometimes a little bit protective. <laughs> this might be good or not good. Everyone has to make their own experiences, I find. But I would like to say that I find it uh, good and I hope I'm trying to come across like this 
to my own students in a way that I say, okay, when you go to a conference, the people that you interact with, the other students, those can be your future collaborators. So just in a way, maybe not um, be, be the person that you are trying to connect. And if there's something or someone that you feel um, is either very helpful that you feel very connected with, just go about it very naturally because these will be the future um, group leaders. So when the PhD student is also becoming a group leader. So the connections are already made at this level. And I think that's a very important point to consider. So it's not just about talking to this great professor that you read uh, 20 papers from and that you are highly excited to talk about. Maybe it's about his student, his or her student, that you sit to uh, next to the table. And maybe this will be a, a person in the future that is super of value. Why am I protected? Um, it's because Obviously, what you don't want is um, that you have a person who's highly excited about research and maybe is so excited to share everything. So everything that is also unpublished, maybe something that is super exciting, but you have never shared this with anyone uh, um, outside of your research group. So that's just something that I find needs a little, maybe a little talk to make the, the student also aware, okay, so please share, but be careful. No? You don't want to, like, also if I'm, I mean, it's just, in a way, it's also a natural thing. If I'm meeting a new person, I'm not going to tell everything of my past or all my secrets. <laughs> I'm going to start and then I develop the conversation further. And that's, I think it comes from this excitement. That's just, if you have a person, and I think, we all want that PhD student who's like burning, have this internal fire to just do the work but that can then cause him or her to, to bubble out all the information um, that he or she knows. So that's just something to say, okay, calm down, <laughs> not everything. I mean, I like your anal analogy in terms of sharing some somebody something about yourself from the start or not and how deep you can go. because I. I in a lot of the workshops that I run, I, I tell people that it's about really the connecting with others, sharing your interests, but how far you can get in terms of the openness with the research data that you have, it's, it's, it can be really hard to know what's the boundaries that you create. So again, I, I suppose it's about having conversation with your supervisor to make sure that whatever is you're working in the lab, what is for public consumption and what is not quite ready yet. And, and, but that, that's kind of a fine boundary. It's quite difficult to. Uh, it's difficult. And I think it just comes with practice. And that's, I think everyone also, me, everyone has to acknowledge that. So there will be situations you maybe say too much. Okay, good. But then you learn for the future because um, you're creating a new researcher. So at one point uh, he or she will be uh, fine. And yeah, but the other thing with, within those settings is also training your student maybe if presenting if they are presenting their work for whom they are presenting so it's something that I also find sometimes challenging so what's the, the expectation are you presenting at an international conference and you want to blow everyone away with your latest data or are you presenting for instance now at the Fidelio midterm meeting and 
you actually want to show also maybe not just your data, but also you want to emphasize your interconnectivity with the other um, students that are involved in the consortium. So that's something um, that is also super important. So what's the what's the what's the crowd that actually um, listens to you, and what do they what do they want to to get from you? Mm. So among some of the final points I like to discuss with you is the uh, the idea of of bias and and gender, and I mean we we've been talking about bias much more over the last few years, and well. In the, in the public sphere, but also in, in academia. How do you think that biases may have influenced your, your own collaboration in terms of the way that you have sought to collaborate with some people versus others, or whether people have reached out to you or not? And I mean, it's a, I think it's a very hard question because often we there are many biases that we are not aware, obviously. And now we know, I mean, we, we know we are not aware of many of, of the biases, but I don't know whether you've done any sort of internal work in terms of figuring some of these things out or if you've, you've observed behaviors, but what your sort of take in terms of biases and, and gender in, in the context of collaboration based on your own experiences? That's a tricky question. So I agree that the, we all carry this bias and in research we we have to be super cautious also because of the work and that's actually where my first my, my mind was going so we i mean if i'm analyzing uh, something and i have to count something i'm always with this um, little person in my mind going okay don't be biased don't be biased maybe i know what the sample is even though i'm blinded and i should not know i'm trying to be as objective as i can but with a personal connection and a, a collaboration, I mean, I can make it maybe a little bit more broad, but I do think there can be a bias if a person is maybe more junior than a senior collaborator. So the bias also that I would have is uh, that the senior person is more experienced. People know this person much more. And that this would be a much better partner for myself to collaborate with. But maybe he or she is already so super busy that maybe they don't answer my requests, my emails. So this I have also experienced. And then it is much better to, to consider the junior options. As in gender-wise, for bias, so personally, I don't have that. But I can see how this could be a problem. But I'm hoping by just focusing on myself and saying, so I'm also not being biased. I collaborate with men and women. <laughs> so I would just like that everyone does the same. I think it's totally fine to acknowledge that while we are all personally different, so as you are different to me, right, even though we have the same sex, Maybe there are also some um, common characteristics of collaborating with a woman versus a man. But I think it's it's a strength to, to view this because maybe um, not based on the sex, no, but maybe this one person is uh, in a way more, more caring. So in a collaboration, he or she will take more focus on if everyone is actually doing okay or while doing the work or if someone is overwhelmed. And that's... 
is equally important as it is to look at the pure science. And it might be good to have a person in a collaboration who just focuses on the data. And I would just like to encourage everyone to, to see it as, as an opportunity and not as a negative message. So maybe to sum this up at uh, this point. So I have heard the words that once a woman becomes a mother, it's um, not possible to be a scientist um, anymore. It's it maybe <laughs> not terrible. easy, yeah. but um, I also don't know what the, the, the fathers are doing in research, so they also have <laughs> challenges to master. <laughs> so, yeah, just get over it. <laughs> yeah. And the opportunities are then there to maybe, um, even though you are having a scientific discussion, to maybe uh, share some joy and hoops, you see the little kid bouncing around in the background of the online meeting and then maybe everyone gets a little laugh and the meeting is more relaxed again. So why not? If that's the benefit, okay. How do you see your own role as a senior research, research leader as a woman in terms of keeping other women in research careers? Because we keep talking about the leaky pipeline. We have many women as PhD student and postdoc, but then the transition to becoming a PI is much more challenging. So what do you see as your role in, in helping women to, in a way, have a sense that they can have that type of career? What, what, what is it that you may do in your department of your, with your own PhD students? And, and I think it goes be, beyond helping people to have confidence, but the way you're approaching your role as a mentor of other women in that space. Mm. So I try to be myself as much as I can. So that also means to me that I show um, that something is maybe hard, that I'm also maybe sometimes disappointed by some of the developments, maybe in a collaboration. And I just start going about it by talking openly, but also sharing that I think there are different ways of doing things than we than we maybe see in general so i'm not living in the town where my workplace is based so i have an apartment there and i'm there nowadays with the pandemic maybe three days a week maybe sometimes just two days a week and i'm doing then the work that i would like to do at the time at the place maybe in the lab or maybe more face-to-face -face meetings, so things that I cannot do online. And I think so one thing is to set an example, but at the same time also be honest. So nothing is worse than pretending how easy it all is maybe to get funding or so. So I think it's good to see, to, to see. I mean, the more and more you grow up with the research. So I think it's natural and okay to start off focusing on your project, especially as a PhD student. But at one point, when you become more relaxed about it and more experienced about it, you will see other things like maybe the political issues in your department or maybe the problems in a collaboration, maybe the need to get funding and maybe um, also the problems that you see in your PI having to, to write all these grants. So it's good for everyone to experience that because only by, by seeing that, I think people can make their own 
suggestions and I would always encourage people to, to stay in research and pursue um, um, this career but I'm also um, not at all opposed of maybe finding different ways maybe going a little bit to industry so I've heard of people doing that and then coming back or I have seen uh, great research being involved in pharmaceutical companies and doing fantastic job there so I think there's a multitude of way of how you can contribute if you like science. Mm. That's what I would like to portray also to my students. Yeah. So what, uh, I mean, it leads to one of the questions that I had for you in terms of what, what does it give you to work in academia that you feel you may not get from other type of role? Because uh, you can do research in lots of different contexts and often working in academia The, the salary is not necessarily mega high compared to what you may get into industry. So in a way for you, what's the buzz of carrying on research in academia? So first of all, um, I have to say, so I know about uh, the salary discussion, but then at the end of the day, I think one has to honestly ask, especially if I'm maybe 10 to 12 hours in the lab, if I like to, or maybe I work in the evening and uh, just finish before I fall into bed. So then, I mean, what honestly do I need? How much money do I need to have a happy and a healthy life? Maybe also supporting my family. So that's maybe one thing to consider, personal note. So I personally have not worked in industry. I was just about doing it. I was highly excited about it at one point, but I did not manage to have this opportunity. So I can only speak from my view that I have. I'm. I feel very free in the academia research environment, even though I've always had a project that was maybe also given to me. So maybe that was not my first drive to say, okay, this is the project now. But then there are so many opportunities where I could also then do my own work that I do value a lot the openness. So there's a lot of exchange with other researchers, international researchers. I like that you have great opportunities to teach. So it doesn't always have to be a lecture um, at your university. It can also be on the lab bench, or maybe you have a discussion about a future collaboration with your student and you want to make sure um, that he or she knows what's, what's happening or what's about to happen. So this I value a lot. And I value that you can arrange the time quite freely. So as a pure researcher, not being a medical researcher, so I'm not in the clinic or anything, I'm not an, an MD, I'm just doing research. So, I mean, obviously there can be experiments that require a certain timing and maybe you have meetings and so on nowadays a lot. But at the end of the day, if I feel like I'm exhausted, my brain is about to burst from all the information, And I decide to take the afternoon off because I need to refresh my mind. But then maybe I can also spend another hour in the evening to finish something. I had to finish. And that's a freedom that is not given with, with all other jobs. So I find that very appealing with academia. So if you were giving yourself some advice um, to your young self, what would it be? to be able to navigate the, you, the research life more freely, with more ease? What, what would you tell 
to yourself as a starting PhD student? Relax. <laughs> I would say relax for me personally. So I find the best things have come to me also in my career when I just let it happen. So instead of pushing something through, it just makes me a better person and then researcher to relax into it. And so I've started my, my PhD. I had no own funding. It, it was already there, so I could relax into it. And some of the opportunities that have come across, even though at the beginning they didn't look like, or maybe they looked a little bit challenging, for instance, before I got my own uh, first um, grant with the German Research Foundation that supported my salary, I was very worried and I was nervous and not sure what's going to happen to my career. So at the end it happened and it worked out. So it's good to just relax because that it will happen. So to sort of finish off, I, I like to ask my uh, podcast interviewing about some tips. So if you had a few tips to give to researchers to learn to navigate the research world, what, what would these tips be? Okay, so the tips would be, so I think when once you start going and navigate around in a research environment, you are already an expert in what you are doing. So be confident about that, but don't stop reading. So it's good to, to read as much as you can, or maybe nowadays watch another webinar of a great scientist to get some insights into other fields. It, it will help you at one point, even though you think that's not not really my topic it's not related to me so that's something as in the science world and the other advice that i would say is try and be as much as yourself as you can be at the end of the day even though you are told maybe you have to be harder or you have to work harder or you have to be i don't know in a way more professional is bad but maybe just i'm thinking of these very stern woman that I met at the beginning of my research career. So that's not something that I am personally am. So I would like to be uh, myself at the time while doing this job. So that's, I think, my advice to to other um, researchers, um, just to be yourself. Because at the end of the day, that's, I think, how you make connections that are valuable also for your job. It's very much about finding the right uh, role models that not everybody in science is the, the right role model for yourself and that seeking to emulate behaviors that you think that's the type of person I want to become instead of having a formatted idea of what you ought to be like. It's good to work with and maybe also work for different personalities to get the experience. But yes, at one point, it's great to make a decision, okay, that's maybe the person or some of the traits that I would also like to have for myself and be this sort of researcher. That's that's a good drive to have. Well, thank you very much, Katarina, for the conversation. I really, really appreciate your, your time. Really a pleasure to uh, meet you. And I, I hope that we get a chance to, to meet face-to-face -face maybe at some point. Uh, thank you. Yes, that would be great. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. 
I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewees on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com. Thank you.